On this episode, I'm honored to have a conversation with Sal Marcogliano. He's a mariner, an educator, and a historian, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation. You are listening to the Women Offshore Podcast. I'm Christine McMillan, filling in for Ali Cedeno while she is on maternity leave. I'm an experienced mariner and the program coordinator here at Women Offshore. Women Offshore is a 501c3 nonprofit organization supporting a diverse workforce on the water. New episodes of the Women Offshore podcasts are available every Tuesday. Subscribe on whatever platform you like to listen to podcasts on and be in the know about the latest topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion within the maritime and offshore industries. Be inspired by the stories shared here. Thank you to the OGGN for their continuous support as our podcast producer. They have the best energy shows on their network. Hi, Sal. Good morning. Good morning, Christine. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you today? Oh, doing fine. Good. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling from home in beautiful Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina, so just south of Raleigh. Okay. All right. I'm up here in the mountains in Colorado. It's so nice that we can virtually meet this way. And I'm excited to have this conversation with you today and see where it meanders for the women offshore community. <laughs> and can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background, your education? Sure. So I started off as a graduate of the State University of New York Maritime College. So I got a BS in marine transportation and immediately embarked on a sea career. So sailed with the Military Sealift Command for three years and then shifted ashore to do work for them for four years. I came down with that problem that many merchant mariners came down with. I got married and <laughs> away from home for a long time was a problem. I've been married 30 years now. My wife changed her mind about 10 years ago. She's like, you know, you can go back out to sea if you want. But at that point, I'd already changed kind of careers a bit. <laughs> so I came ashore. I had to decide whether or not to stay working with the government. I decided to embark on an academic career. I always loved, you know, reading about our profession. So I went to East Carolina University. I got a master's in maritime history and nautical archaeology at East Carolina, and then went over to the University of Alabama to get a PhD in military and naval history. Then jumped around for about 10 years teaching at a whole batch of schools from UNC to East Carolina to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy to the U.S. Military Academy. And now I've been a professor at Campbell University for 12 years. Wow. So you love history. I do. You know, that was one of my passions. I always loved it when I was on ships back in the day before we had, you know, tablets and readers and stuff like that. I always lugged a couple of books with me on board. So I'd always bring a couple of big tombs of books with me just so that I'd read while we were out. So yeah, I always loved the, the history. I always love understanding. And one of the things that struck me during my sailing career was there wasn't a lot written about the recent history of, of our profession. You know, you got all the things about the age of sail and early careers, but not a lot about the modern. And that really struck me. And so that's been one of my goals is really to document what's happened in the recent history of the Merchant Marine. And so is that one reason that you got your YouTube channel started? Well, YouTube channel was a whole different kind of issue there. I had started posting some videos where I had done some presentations and so just because, you know, you go as a professor, you give a lecture at some place and there may be 15, 30 people in an audience and it really doesn't go that far. And so I had these PowerPoints and what I did was just use the PowerPoints and record my, my, my presentation over it and I'd post them. And it was a very small following. But back in March of 2021, when Evergiven went sideways in the Suez Canal, 
I had been contributing to G-Captain. It's an online maritime news site. And I've been doing a lot more in terms of maritime industry policy. Back in 2008, I started teaching a graduate course for the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy on maritime industry policy for, of all things, their Masters of Marine Engineering. I am a historian <laughs> teaching in the engineering department at the Merchant Marine Academy. And wow. the reason, well, the reason was that Jose Feminia, who used to be the chair over at the Merchant Marine Academy, said, I want my students to know the industry. And so, you know, you're supposed to provide that background. And so it was really great for me because I was talking to people who were in the industry and there was a lot of feedback, both in, I learned as much in that class, I think, as my students did at times, you know, learning about the industry in different areas. And so I started writing about this and I was asked to give some presentations and do some talks. But in March of 21, Whenever Given went sideways, the editor of G-Captain got a call from the BBC and said, listen, mm -hmm. we need somebody to come on who can talk about Ever Given. And the guy in charge of G-Captain, John Conrad, couldn't do it because <laughs> it was his daughter's birthday and said, well, I got a guy who can do it for you. And so he gave him my name. So <laughs> I went on the BBC. I did this talk about Ever Given and, and not just about the wreck, but you know, shipping in general and the background and the growth of container ships and all this kind of stuff. And right after that was over, the producer came on and said, you did a really good job. And I said, well, I appreciate that. I said, I'm sure you say that to everyone. He goes, no, I'm British. We don't say that to anybody. <laughs> uh, he, he said, he said you're, you're really good and we want to use you some more. And I loved it and it was really great. And I was able to do that, but I didn't get a chance to say everything I wanted to say. So I started just doing a YouTube, you know, I started just posting some videos on what's going on in the Suez. And that just took off. I mean, it was just crazy. I think like, again, the, I just looked the other day, this day before I started with Ever Given, I had like 130 subscribers and like three people looked at my channel the day before. The <laughs> next day, I had over 3,000 people watching a video I did on Ever Given. And today I'm at over 45,000 subscribers and 4.7 million views. So wow. it's been crazy how much it's grown over time. That's really cool that, you know, just your experience, you were able to educate such a huge population overnight, right? When something like the Ever Given going sideways in the Suez Canal happens, the entire world notices and you were able to be there to educate. So that's really an awesome place to be. It was a lot of fun. You know, I brought on Salvage Master from the Costa Concordia wreck. And so we were talking yeah. about it. We were talking about, you know, we'd pull up a news report and say, okay, this is right. This is wrong. And talk yeah. about it. And I was actually in the middle of a news thing when she came free. And so we went, you know, I put, went live on YouTube and started just fielding questions for like an hour and a half. People just had questions and it was great. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And you know, that would have been it. It would have been over in a week because the ship was stuck for six days, but then she got arrested. And so I kept <laughs> doing videos of, okay, you know, what's going on in the Suez? Well, she's still stuck. And I had someone who actually texted me and emailed me and he said, he goes, you know, you're great. You tell us a lot of stuff, but maybe you should branch out and do some more and talk about shipping in general. He goes, you got an audience now. Maybe you should build on that. And I did, you know, I started just doing some stories and, you know, things I found interesting. And then I started a weekly one about the beginning of the week. I do what's called what the ship where I do like top five maritime stories. So five minute slices of what's going on with what I think is the top five stories you know, and they're completely subjective. I know that. And, and the fifth <laughs> one is always one I find the most interesting, which most people don't, but I do. And it's been great. It's been fun to do it. And I find myself now being like a regular on FreightWaves TV talking about shipping and getting calls from people I would never expect to be called from, congressmen, senators, people in amazing influence positions. It's just, it's, you know, when they call you an influencer and some people call me that, it's like, I, no, I'm not. But then you realize, well, actually you do influence things a little bit. 
And social media is a very powerful tool if you use it correctly. Yeah. And we're honored to have you here on our podcast today as an influencer. (laughs) Thank you, Sal. I hate the title. I really do because I don't feel like I'm a historian. I just, you know, I just, I teach history. It's all I do. I had a shipping career and that's it. But, you know, it is what it is. Well, can you tell us about someone that you recently interviewed on your YouTube channel and, you know, you found interesting or that you want to share some of the information? Sure. So, you know, one of the ones that I got coming out and it'll be out next week is an interview I'm just doing with Madeline Walchko, second maid on board the President Wilson. She is a Cal Maritime grad and she found herself and the crew of the President Wilson in a very unique position. They were on board the APL President Wilson, U.S. flag container ship, operates in the Pacific run. And they went in for a 30 day shipyard period in Shanghai. And what's really interesting is, again, Usually you don't see U.S. ships go in foreign yards. They usually go into U.S. yards. But because of the decline in the maritime infrastructure in the U.S., there aren't sufficient shipyards in the United States to handle commercial. Most of the U.S. shipyards handle military vessels, Navy, a military sea lift command. And for a 30-day shipyard, a lot of shipping companies have to go. And since the APL, President Wilson, operates to China, they went into a shipyard in Shanghai. Well, 30 days turned into 110 days in the shipyard because they got caught in the middle of the COVID lockdown. Oh, and no. so one day at lunchtime, the workers went off and didn't come back. Oh my and gosh. The main engine was torn down. Yeah, the main engine was torn down. They only had one service engine running. And not only that, they didn't have enough food on board because their food shipment that was scheduled to come that day got turned around. And so Madeline and the crew on board started a YouTube series entitled Restricted to Ship. And I found it really fascinating. And I started doing quick little synopsis as the episodes dropped and actually did an interview with her while she was in Shanghai, which was, it's a terrible quality interview, but it's a fantastic interview because of the Wi-Fi we were using. But it was really great. And so I wanted to follow up now that she's back home. The President Wilson has gotten out of the shipyard and exactly come back to the United States. She's off now and really get her perspective on what was it like being stuck in the middle of a lockdown in China. You know, she was one of the only women on board the vessel, a second mate. So, you know, second mate's a navigator and, and not a lot of navigation to do when you're stuck in the shipyard. Not in the shipyard. And so a lot of, <laughs> no, but a lot of it was trying to do as much work as they can to get systems up and operating enough so that they can operate. I mean, they were literally pumping out water from the holds because they couldn't get their pumps going. So they had to use portable pumps. A lot of things that you would not normally do, they had to do. And it was a really interesting, and again, she used social media in a very unique way to kind of portray what's happening here with an American ship. So I love that story. And I think she's a fantastic person to be the face of not only that story, but the maritime industry in general. She's a musician. She's posted a video I loved that I put at the end of one of my videos of her playing the guitar down in one of the holds of the vessel. Oh, how cool. It was great. I loved it. And so it was just, she makes me happy to talk to someone in the maritime industry because, you know, she's really got a lot of excitement. And even after this huge disaster is to stay in Shanghai. She's still, you know, encouraged by the industry, which is a great thing. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I'm excited to hear that interview with her and maybe we can even reach out to her ourselves. I'd love to hear her story as well. And thank you for elevating the female perspective. That's like one of the major things that we do here at Women Offshore is try and make sure that the female perspective within the industry is understood. So it's nice that you're there. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit. You know, you're a historian, but you're an educator. You've been in a lot of educational roles where 
you're trying to impart wisdom, right? What is something that we can work on to teach our next generation of mariners? I think one of the biggest disservices we've done is not talk about the importance and the history of our profession. So, you know, I, I've taught at the U.S. Military Academy. When I taught at the U.S. Military Academy for a year, I taught a course called the Art of Military History or the, the History of the Military Arts and the History of the Military Art. Every graduate of the U.S. Military Academy has to take that. They have to take it. And basically what it is, it's a history of their profession. And yeah. so when they walk out the door of the military academy, they know about the history of the army. Navy does the same thing at the Navy Academy. And one of the things that I've found woefully lacking for, among us is, you know, you go to one of the state schools, you go to King's Point, the Federal Academy, and your course level is ridiculous. We all know this. We all know oh, yeah. the amount of credits you take, and it's insane because of all the engineering and all the other aspects you have to take with cruising and everything. But one of the things that I think is really missing is a, you know, a capstone course that talks about the history of our profession. You know, we should all be advocates for that profession. And I think when we don't know the history of it, it's very hard for us to communicate to others about our profession. I've had that story of, hey, I was a merchant marine. Oh, that's oh, my uncle, my grandfather was a merchant marine. What is that again? You know, and then you have to explain <laughs> exactly what the merchant marine is. It's like, no, not mm -hmm. a marine. You know, not Semper Fi. It, it's completely <laughs> different. And you know, we have a hard time communicating among ourselves in our profession, let alone to people outside our profession. And I think that's the other biggest thing. You know, Army generals and Navy admirals will write biographies of themselves in a second and tell you how great they are. They will, they will do that all the time. <laughs> Ships masters and chief engineers don't do that. They just don't. And a lot of them also don't transition into shoreside jobs very easily. Some industries have that. The tanker industry, I would say, was the best one at doing that. But a lot of other yeah. industries aren't. And so we lose a lot of that perspective of the history and more important, the importance. I mean, we've just seen a global supply chain crisis. We're in the midst of it still, I would argue. And you know, what relationship does shipping and the maritime sector have to everyone? I think everyone, whether you're on the coast or if you're in landlocked Nebraska, you've learned how important shipping is because you've been impacted by a supply chain delay of some kind or another. And I think, you know, we don't do enough to communicate that, not only among ourselves as professionals in the industry, but to people outside the industry. I agree. It's hard to have that conversation. I mean, I'm the first person in my family to be in the merchant marine. And, you know, luckily I got pointed in the right direction into this career, but it's even there where you're still trying to tell your story and have your elevator pitch of what the merchant marine is <laughs> so you can quickly, you know, tell them and then move along and avoid the simplify comments, right? So, <laughs> but yeah, I think that that's wonderful. So if people can understand the history of their, and I think we took a history of sea power course at school and that was wonderful, but it wasn't really down to the roots of the history of our profession, I don't think. So I think no, that's a wonderful idea. Because I do think when they start talking about sea power, what you tend to get then is the military application of it. And even, you know, within, you know, even if you go to the classic Mahan, uh, you know, Alfred Thayer Mahan, 1890, writes The mm -hmm. Influence of Sea Power Upon History. First of all, everyone quotes Mahan, but no one ever reads Mahan for a good reason. He's a terrible, <laughs> he's a terrible read. He's ter I've read everything of him, but he's terrible. <laughs> but what he says at the very beginning of his book is, listen, the only reason to have a Navy is to protect commerce and trade. But I'm going to talk about the military side because I'm a Navy captain. And I want to advocate for that. The problem is nobody wrote the commercial side of that book. 
and talked about mm-hmm. that commercial aspect. And what's really interesting is right now we're seeing almost a resurgence, a renaissance. I'm not sure what to call it right now, but you're getting authors who are writing about this. Bruce Jones just wrote a book, To Rule the Waves, which really talks about the importance of commercial shipping and the role it plays, especially post-World War II. We've seen it with authors, other books. Greg Easterbrook wrote a book called Blue Age that talks about this. Peter Zehans wrote a book, just came out about this. And so there's a lot more authors who are talking about the importance of this and how you know the commercial industry and commercial shipping is so integral to our existence today. I joke about being a globalized society with my students all the time. Because you find, you know, Chinese coins in Pompeii, which is destroyed during the Roman Empire. But that was very small. Today, I mean, you can't survive without international trade. Anyone who ever talks about, well, we should should throw up the walls and close ourselves off doesn't understand the way the economy works. And, you know, putting that into context is really, really important. And the role that the commercial industry plays in that is, and again, when we talk about shipping, I'm not just talking about ships on the high seas. I'm talking about inland waters, talking about coastal waters, talking about shipyards, talking about manufacturers who make marine parts, GPS, you know, all those little elements build into an entire infrastructure, the ports, port security, inspections, you name it. There's so much that's involved in it. Yeah. It's not glamorous though. It's not glamorous, but it's important. And I think that's been part of the problem is we don't really talk about the importance of the role. You know, now today, you know, I'm in a private college in central North Carolina, you know, with has a camel <laughs> as a mascot. I'm about as antithesis of shipping as you can get. But I have students come up to me all the time because they know I talk about this and I do presentations on it. I run classes on it. And they're like, I'm really interested in the supply chain. How do I get into this side of it? And it is an important element and how you can get into it. And I think one of the problems has been we have missed opportunities to talk about the maritime industry. You know, when does the maritime industry ever make the news? It's a disaster. It's, something <laughs> yes. has gone wrong. Yes. You know, something has gone wrong and therefore we've made the news. And my argument is that's great. Let's use this as an opportunity to talk about it. Whenever given went sideways in the Suez, but it's my opportunity to talk about global shipping and the importance of container ships and the development of ultra large container ships and how a truck driver from North Carolina named Malcolm McLean in 1956 invented the container that revolutionized the world economy. That's the moment you start talking about that, you know, and you talk about sea land and you talk about U.S. lines and you talk about how the Americans were really the big proponents of containerization for a long time, how containerization solved the problem of shipping congestion off of Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And, you know, we miss those opportunities to take those issues and elevate them up. And, you know, disasters are terrible, but they're also opportunities for us to talk about them. And I think one of the big problems is, or one of the advantages today is you can go and hit Instagram, you know, TikTok, YouTube, and do a search for something. And, you know, if all that comes up is the bad news, that's what they're going to get. But if you post a video out there or a news source on good news, that's what they're going to find. And they're going to reference it and everything. You know, During the midst of Ever Given, I was asked by CNN and the Washington Post to write pieces on global shipping. And mm-hmm. I'm a historian. Historians don't write pieces fast. We just historically don't. I mean, we just, we just don't. We, we, you know, it takes us months to write anything. But for a news cycle, you got to write something fast. And that's one of the things I learned is like, get it out there. What do I want to get out there real quick that will make people read this? And mm-hmm. so, you, you know, you have to respond very quickly. And I think that's something we need to build on more. You know, it shouldn't be me out there. Why is it not, you know, chairs of departments at Kings Point and New York Maritime, 
and Maine Maritime and California are the ones out there. They're not. And it, that should be done, I think. No, I think you're right. And I like what you said that, you know, we can take a bad situation and use it to our advantage of elevating voices and giving us a platform to speak because, you know, a lot of times we are overlooked. And since it's not a glamorous industry, you know, nobody thinks about it until there is something wrong. So what do you see within the future of the maritime industry? Where are we going from here? Well, in the midst of a supply crisis and everything, <laughs> supply well, chain you know, crisis. I, I think the supply chain crisis, first off, is really unique. I mean, this is really the greatest issue to face the shipping industry since the world wars. We've never seen a disruption on this level before. It really is a worldwide event and it's gotten a lot of attention to it. And I think, again, we have to raise the level of attention, how dependent we are on imports and exports into this country. And I think, you know, when you raise that level of concern with, like I said, you know, a farmer in Nebraska now realizes I can't get my crops out. You know, and that's going to hurt me because, you know, there's a world food shortage looming on the horizon because of a conflict in Russia, Ukraine, and I can't get my crops out because I can't get containers on board a ship, you know, a hop hog ship going out of California. That all of a sudden raises that level. So I think, you know, the issue of the importance of trade, really important. And again, one of the reasons why we should have a more of an interest in it with the U.S. flag, for example. You know, right now, the nine big carriers that carry 85% of all the containers and three big alliances are all foreign-owned and foreign-flagged. You know, basically, the U.S. merchant marine has shrunk down to its smallest it's ever been. And it's only in existence because of three things, and that is the Jones Act, which protects coastal trade. You know, the Maritime Security Program, which is money given to 60 ships to operate, you know, so we have a reservoir in, t- in case of war, and then ships under contract, you know, government cargo preference. And so I think we need to raise more opinion of that. But I think for, you know, on the engineering side, the technology is one of the most interesting we see looming on the horizon, you know, calls for decarbonization at sea is going to really change fundamentally propulsion of vessels in the mm. future. You know, one of the things that is propelled. If you look at the history, and again, I'm a historian here, when you look at the history of the U.S. Merchant Marine, what it's been able to do is grab a technology and use it in a way that other countries haven't. Everything from the Baltimore schooner to the clipper ship to steam propulsion on inland waterways to containerization to the super tanker to the mega cruise ship are all inventions that literally came out from the United States. These were inventions that the U.S. really introduced may not have been the best one at applying them, but we introduced them. And now today we're talking about ammonia fuel. We're talking about hydrogen. We're talking about LNG. We're talking about, you know, how do you turn the largest object ever created by humans into zero carbon emissions? And, you know, I got the solution. It's called a sailboat, but that's (laughs) the cargo we need. You know, we can go back to the Cuddy Sark but mm-hmm. you're not going to get 14,000 containers on a wooden sail ship. So we've right. got to come up with something different here. You know, we were the greenest industry in the world for a long time with sail propulsion, <laughs> but then we got pretty dirty for a while. And now we're still clean. I mean, you know, per ton, shipping emits the least amount of carbon than any other mode of propulsion. The problem is we don't just move one ton of cargo. We move 140,000 tons of cargo in a single ship. And that Mm -hmm. creates a huge carbon footprint. So I think the technology side is really one of the most interesting things. The other thing too is autonomy. You know, how are we going to automate and autonomize vessels? A lot of mariners cringe at that idea. They don't like that idea. But I would argue it's going to change the way people work. 
when you have autonomy over vessels and we're never going to go completely manless, that's not going to happen. And one good reason, insurance, no one's going to insure a vessel that doesn't have a crew on board crossing the Atlantic. It's just not going to happen. No mm-hmm. one's going to insure that. But what you're going to have is, you know, remote at home, you know, doing a lot of things engineering wise, navigation wise, you know, backing things up, you know, why does ever forward go aground coming out of Baltimore? And, you know, based on what I've been hearing from a lot of people, the pilot got distracted and they lost situational awareness. Why is there not an autopilot system that mandates the turn and you confirm it? Why is there not systems that back that up? And I think, you know, we're at a, a really a tipping point here in technology. What's going to change here in the near future? And if we're smart, you know, the maritime institutions, the private companies should be on the forefront of what is that new technology that's going to revolutionize the shipping industry. And unfortunately, I feel like the shipping industry is, I don't know, 15 or 20 years behind on the technology curve. Do you see that there any chance of us catching up where we can get faster at doing these? I always talk about the fact that Malcolm McLean, a truck driver, created the ideal X. Elon Musk, who's not an astronaut, created SpaceX. You know, it is Mm. not the shipping companies that are going to do this. It's going to be the carriers. It's going to be the people who are on the receiving end of this who do it. You know, I joke about right now that there's a truck driver sitting in a line to get into LA and Long Beach or New York right now who's sitting there going, man, there's got to be a better way to do this. And and (laughs) that was Malcolm McLean in the 1930s. And it took him 20 years, but he came up with it. And I think that's where we'll see it happen. You know, how does Amazon get around shipping constraints coming into LA and Long Beach? How does, Mm -hmm. you know, Ikea do it? And I think, you know, looking at the traditional shipping firm, the traditional shipping firm is looking short term. I got to keep a profit. I got to get through the next quarter. I don't have time for the big issues. Meanwhile, the innovation is going to come from other places. And it's going to be a question of, can you get that capital venture people to invest in it? Can we put together a shark tank for shipping where that we can invest money? You see it overseas. You see it in Europe Mm -hmm. and Asia like crazy where people will invest in this. You got to get government support too, because government's got to do things to make shipping economical. You know, when you build a ship, you know, it takes you three years to build a ship. So you're going to see no profit for five years, 10 years, maybe. And, you know, to make that profitable, you have to have some incentive to be willing to do that. And again, the question is, do we want to do it? Japan, China, and Korea build 93% of the world's ships. Why? Because the government support them in doing that. We need to get back to that place where we once were. And I would argue we can't. A lot of people say, oh, it's too late. We're done for it. I don't buy that for a minute. I think we can do it again. You know, We came up with the iPad. We came up with everything. We don't may not build them here, but we come up with a lot of technology. And we can come up with that next level. Great. So I've learned so much from you today. And... I'm excited to continue this conversation. I hope that we can have another interview again in the future. But if people want to learn more from you, how can they get in touch with you or find you, your YouTube channel? Sure. So my YouTube channel is called What's Going On With Shipping. So you can just type that in and it'll come up. I do videos probably about two or three a week, depending on what's going on in the news. Like I said, I do a weekly one called What The Ship, which is a nice little recap of what's going on in the news. And then I'm pretty active on Twitter at Mercogliano S M E R C O G L I A N O S. And Hey, I have even ventured into Instagram and TikTok. So working on trying to cover all the social medium that I can get out there. And of course I can always be found at Campbell university where I'm the chair of the department of history, criminal justice, and political science. Yeah. We didn't even scratch the surface of your political science and 
criminal side of your hat that you wear. So hopefully (laughs) next time we can go that direction. I love speaking with you. You have so much knowledge. Thank you so much for being a part of our community and being an amazing resource for all of us. And thank you for your time. Do you have anything else that you want to add? No, I would just like to add that I have such huge respect for what Women Offshore does. I was fortunate enough to provide a little bit of insight, you know, because of my position on issues involving sexual assault, sexual harassment to the U.S. government. It's amazing, again, what, you know, a YouTube channel can generate you to do. I was very happy to do that. And I think that, you know, raising the attention and level of issues in the maritime sector is so crucial. And the only way to do that intelligently and with, you know, facts and evidence behind it is by organizations like yours and to get that information out there into the hands of people who want to do it. It's a great industry. It's a fantastic, you know, opportunity. The the opportunities are there if you want to embark on that. But a lot of the hesitation is people just don't know about it. And I think through your organization and other outlets, we can, you know, kind of pull the veil from what is has been a kind of a mysterious industry to one that maybe a lot of more young people will be interested to jump into. Yeah, that's so true. We're definitely trying to lift the veil on this industry and also have these tough conversations. So people are aware of what they're getting themselves into and the work that they're going to be doing. And then, you know, we're really working hard to change the entire culture to make the seas the safer environment for everyone. So thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you. And I hope you have a wonderful day and I hope we get to talk again soon. I look forward to it, Christine. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Women Offshore podcast. What did you think of the show? Leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Additionally, if you want to propel Women Offshore forward, please visit womenoffshore.org or womenoffshore.shop. Make a donation or purchase some swag. Until next time, stay safe out there and I'll talk to you soon.